from, from one of our elders today. Uh, Renee and I have been, had been praying and felt God stir us, be like, man, we, we want to bring someone in from uh, like guest ministry to minister to our family. And as we would talk about, um, you know, who, who could that be? Who do, who do we know? There is uh, one person that continuously came back to our minds, and that is Jim Penner, who is one of our executive elders, one of our board members, um, who you may not know, carries a, a, a teaching, preaching anointing, has preached in many places around the world, and uh, today I believe that he has a rhema word for us. A rhema word is a right now word. It's a, it's a word that is for us in due season in this moment. And I believe that he has something for us to release into us and to launch us forward into something new and significant that God has for us. So what I want you to do, I want you to stand and I want you to give a round of applause for Jim and welcome him as he comes. Come on. And then as he comes, I want, you to, I want you to say this with me. Say, I receive all that you have for me. You may be seated. Wow. God bless you. You may be seated. Um, whenever I do this, it gets very interesting. I remember, I'll tell you a quick story because we'll get to this in a minute. 2014, February 2014, I went to Nigeria with Morris Cirillo. He asked me to come with him, and we're going from the airport to the hotel, and then we're going to, he was going to speak at a church that night. It was a, a leadership conference of African pastors. There were 5,000 in this auditorium, jam-packed, and we get halfway to the church, and Morris Cirillo says, I don't think I'm supposed to preach tonight. And I go, what do you mean you're not supposed to preach? You're the headliner. And he says, no, I'm not supposed to preach. You're supposed to preach. And I go, what? And he said, uh, he says, yeah, you're, you're going to preach. He says, so I'll drop you off at the church, then I'm going back to the hotel. <laughs> and that's exactly what he did. So I sat in the worship time, like Josiah was leading here. I sat in the worship time, no notes, and uh, had a Bible. And I just let God soak in during that worship time. And then I got a word from the Lord, and I says, okay, I don't know what's about to happen, but here it goes. Had the same experience this morning, even though I have a, a message that God needs for you today. But I sat here in the worship time, and all of a sudden, God gave me a download and said, here's the word that I want you to give. And I says, Lord, you, you sure you want me to give that word? And he goes, that's the word I want you to give. It's okay. So I don't know what's about to happen. But something's about to happen. Let me set the stage for this. So I'm sitting here. The ceiling of this church doesn't exist. It's gone. There's a giant, like a, to think of a giant balcony above the ceiling. And thousands of angels have suddenly lined up at that balcony to look down to see about what's going to happen now. That's the setting. And there's a very bright light in the center of those angels, and that's God. And he's watching what he's going to do right now. So here you go. Everybody close your eyes. And in your lap with your hand, make a fist. Doesn't have to be a clenched, super tight fist. Just make a fist. And here's the word that God gave. My children, you've had a line in your life. 
You've been standing before this line for a long time. It's a line you've not been able to cross. It's a breakthrough you've not been able to receive. You've prayed against that line to try to get to the other side. You've raged against it. You've pounded your fist against it. And nothing has been able to penetrate that line. So much so that you've given up in prayer about this line. Whatever this is in your life, you've given up praying for it. Because you don't want to be disappointed again. My children, I'm saying to you today, push your hand forward. Keep your fist clenched. Push your hand forward. You're actually pushing it through that line. Now the Lord is saying, open your hand and give your burden to me one more time. Thus saith the Lord. Somebody just got a miracle. I don't know who. Somebody just got a miracle. Whew. You got to have more joy than that. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know when you're going to realize you had your miracle. You may realize it next week or next, you know, next month, and you may say, that was the day. That was the day. So when that happens, you come tell Craig and Renee. Because there was a whole bunch of breakthroughs that just happened there. <laughs> I hear it because the angels are all applauding. The angels are all applauding. The angels are all applauding. Okay, you ready for this message? Okay. In the delightful romantic film, Letters to Juliet. Have you ever seen that movie, Letters to Juliet? Anybody ever seen that movie? Oh, my wife has seen that movie. She loves that movie. Okay. The premise of this little romantic comedy is, is mostly women, but some men from around the world go to Verona, Italy. That's the premise of the film. And in Verona, Italy, there's a balcony there, and it's supposedly the balcony that inspired Shakespeare to write Romeo and Juliet. So they would go to this balcony, and there's stones beneath the balcony, and people would write down their lovelorn letters to Juliet, seeking advice, almost like Dear Abby, right? And, and, and they would take those letters, and they'd stuff them into the wall. Well, in the film, there's some ladies, and they consider themselves Juliet's secretary. So at the end of the day, they go out there, and they gather up all the letters, and they take them back to their little office, and they actually write responses to these ladies or men who have written these letters to Juliet to help them with their, their, you know, their love issues, their love problems, their relationship problems. Well, in the film, uh, in the film, and uh, Amanda Seyfried is the, the actress, and she's there gathering letters one day, and one of the stones moves, and she finds a letter that's kind of tucked behind the stones that's been there for decades, maybe 30, 40 years. And she digs that letter out, and she reads it. And she tells the ladies, it's 30 years old, but I have to respond to this letter. And there was a return address on it, and so she actually wrote a response to this letter. And the words that she wrote are very compelling for us today. The letter, the wrote, the, the letter she wrote to Vanessa Redgrave, she actually wrote it to, says, what and if are two words as non-threatening as words can be. But put them together side by side, and they have the power to haunt you for the rest of your life. What if? What if? What if? 
I don't know what a love like Juliet's feels like. A love to leave loved ones for, a love to cross oceans for. But I'd like to believe if I were ever to feel it, that I've had the courage to seize it. So today I ask you, what if God's promises are real? What if God's promises are real? What if you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? What if with God nothing is impossible? What if by his stripes you are healed? What if? Those are powerful words. Now, I guarantee you, maybe three people in this room know my story. My wife, Craig, and Renee, and that's probably about it. I was born in Nebraska into a Mennonite community. If you've ever seen on those shows about the Amish, yes, we're kind of a, a group associated with the Amish, but if you consider the Amish the far political right, the, the Mennonites are kind of the left of that group of people, right? We had, the Amish have buggies, we actually had cars with chrome on the bumpers, you know, so we're the, we're the radicals, we had telephones in our houses, so we're the Mennonites. And yes, boys and girls sat next together to each other in church. And I did go to some kind of hold them in an Amish churches where that didn't happen. Boys sat over here and girls sat over here. So that's how I grew up. I grew up in the Mennonite church. At the age of five, my parents and we lived on, on a farm. My grandfather had, uh, his, his father had come from nothing, from the Ukraine actually, as a farmer in the early 1900s, came without a penny in his pocket. And by the time he had passed away, he deeded 160 acres of prime corn land to each of his eight children debt-free. So my grandfather was an inheritor of that, and he did the same thing. He deeded 160 acres of prime corn land to each of his three children debt-free. That was my mom. So I grew up on that farm, and at the age of five, we suddenly moved to Denver. And at the age of five, you don't think nothing of it, but, you know, you, I thought I was going to grow up on the farm. And we moved to Denver because my natural father had decided that he wanted to chase women more than he wanted to farm. And so they were youth group leaders in the Mennonite church, and he was having affairs with the teenage girls in the youth group in the church. In a small town, that gets found out pretty quick. So later in life, I found out why we suddenly moved when I was five years old to Denver. And it was interesting because when we moved to Denver at the age of five, my... Uh, my mom led me to Christ. I, I still remember at the age of five in that first house we lived in in Denver. And I didn't understand all that that meant, but as I grew over the next couple of years, I understood what that meant. It started to, to dawn on me because over the next five years, uh, grades kindergarten through fifth grade, I went to six elementary schools because my father was constantly running from creditors or some mistake that he had made. So now I found myself, so every year, every single year, I was in a new elementary school trying to make friends. And that kind of stuck with me. And my, my grandmother, on my dad's side, finally told my mom, you have to divorce my son. You can't raise your kids in this house, in this type of household. So she did, took the courage, had never worked a day in her life, and uh, I watched my mom raise two kids for the next couple of years. And we had, we had next to nothing. And my grandfather in Nebraska was saying, come home, come home. And mom says, I don't feel like that's what we're supposed to do. And I remember one of the lessons my mom taught me was we were sitting in church one Sunday and I have holes in my shoes. And my mom's writing a check when the offering plate went by. 
and she puts money in the offering plate. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, God gave to us, we'd give back what is his. And I have, with holes in my shoes, and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense to me until we walked out of the church that day and it was snowing, and one of the men in the church came up to my mom and says, Neva, your, your tires are bald. You need new tires. Come by my shop, I'll give you some new, we'll get you some new tires tomorrow. She goes, I can't afford it. And he goes, your money's no good with me. And so God had just repaid her her tithe five times over what she put in the offering plate with brand new snow tires. And so those are the lessons I learned when I was a kid. But then I get to college, and a funny thing happens. You go to college, and you decide you have better ways. So, you know, when I got to college, boy, I ran from God as hard as I could. Didn't really leave him behind. I didn't forsake him, but I certainly didn't follow him. You know, if there was, if there was a bar to crawl into with my buddies, we were crawling into it on the weekends, especially at the University of Denver where there's, uh, there's hockey. And where there's hockey, there is beer. <laughs> Edmonton knows all about this. So that, those were my college years, and I get to a point where when I graduated from college after four years of just essentially ignoring God, I'm driving to California for my first job, and as I'm driving through Monument Valley, God says to me, I hear this voice in my car that says, how long are you going to run from me? And I knew it was God, and I ignored it for the next 70, 80, 90 miles, and it was getting dark out, and I could see the lights of Vegas coming up. And you know what that means when you're just out of college. And, oh, I can kill a couple hours here real easy. And as I see the lights of Vegas coming on, all of a sudden, I, uh, God said it again. He says, how long are you going to run from me? And I said, I guess I just stopped. And I drove right through Vegas and went right to California. Never stopped. And it wasn't long after that that I, I met my wife uh, at the Crystal Cathedral in, in a college career group. And we've been married 33 years now, going on 34 this year. And we met and got married, and pretty soon her dad's like, why aren't you working in the family business? And I says, because I have a degree in finance. I don't work in ministry. And he says, ah, oh, church needs finance too. Come on, you need, you need to. So I said, God, okay, God, I'll give you a year. And I went to work for a year for, for Gretchen's father, Dr. Robert Schuler. And after a year, I thought, okay, I'm, I think I'm going to go back into finance. And about that time, a man named Rupert Murdoch, who you know from Fox News and Fox Corporation, decided to give the Crystal Cathedral free airtime in Europe to air our power. And at the same time, the executive producer of the show had just retired or resigned. And Gretchen's mom had to take it over, and she goes, I don't want to take all of this over again. Why don't you handle Europe, Jim, handle the budgets and the finance and what you know how to do. I'll handle the program because it's a completely different program over there. It's, you have to do things differently in your fundraising and all kinds of constraints. So I started that. That was my entrance into television. And from there, slowly but surely, uh, over the next 23 years, produced over 1,000 hours of religious television. Edited just about every preacher you can imagine. If they're a big name, they came through the doors of the church. My wife was the programming director there for many years. You know, everybody from... Oh, gosh, James Ingram was one of her favorites and, and brought in John Tesh and, and Dr. Laura Schlesinger and all the big names of the day. They all came through the church, and Gretchen brought him in, and I was the production guy. I put the messages together on for television. And along the way, I met a man named Morris Cirillo. And through a friend of ours, 
he had wanted to put a program back on television and he couldn't get a breakthrough. He wanted a program, he wanted a talk show like The Tonight Show, but he wanted it about prayer. And he didn't want to do it on a studio at TBN. He wanted to do it in Hollywood where somebody would actually pay attention to it, right? And so he came to me through some friends and, and I just kind of liked him. The first time I walked in, he gave me this huge bear hug like he'd known me 30 years. And I go, who is this man? And God, why are you putting this man in my life? And so long story short, I got him a, through the, obviously the Lord's leading, we got him into CBS Television City. Down the hall from us was American Idol and Dancing with the Stars. And in our studio, the old Carol Burnett studio where they shot the Carol Burnett show and the price is right today is Studio 33. And that's where we shot Helpline, a one-hour show about prayer. And we had the, the, the stars of the day coming through and talking about prayer in their life. And people could call into the studio if they needed prayer in their life. And over the next three years, over a million people called that hotline for prayer. And these aren't the choir. These are people, we heard this thing at 11 o'clock at night when all the insomniacs are up because they're so worried about stuff in their life. And so these weren't church folks calling in for prayer. We saw more miracles in those three years than I could that I could document. It was unbelievable. And so then fast, fast forward a couple of years, Morris asked me, he goes, I'm building a legacy center in San Diego. And I says, what's that? And he goes, well, it's, it's kind of part resort, it's kind of part hotel and part presidential library. Are you interested in coming to help me? And I says, I love working with you. Of course I'll come help you. So I came to San Diego to, to help build the legacy center. So that's a little bit of my, my background. And along the way, God would have me get up in front of some fine folks like you and give a word. So that's where we're at today. If you don't think God's promises are real, just look at my life. Because I can't walk a day without realizing God's promises are real. There is no way a Mennonite kid from Nebraska whose father cheated on his wife as they were growing up gets to where I am. It doesn't happen. And it has absolutely nothing to do with me and absolutely everything to do with him. I can't take any credit for it. All I did was say yes. God says, how long are you going to stop running from me? And I guess, I guess I stopped. That's opening your hand. I just said, here it is. Here's my life. Do with it what you want. Wow. God's promises are real. So I wrote down here, what if I finally stopped procrastinating and finally said yes to Jesus? Not yes to salvation. You may, have, you may have said yes to Jesus for your salvation a long time ago. I'm talking about just opening your hand and saying, okay, Lord, I trust you. I don't partially trust you. I don't trust you and keep this, this finger closed because I'm not going to let you have that. I'm too worried you won't do anything about it. You know what I'm saying? What if God's promises are real? So let's go to John 15. This is how you know that God can take over. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I think they've got the scripture verse. There you go. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. As a branch cannot bear fruit in of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Wow. Why is it that we try to be the vine rather than the branch? So often in life. 
because we look for the right relationships, we look for the right job situation, we look for the right breakthrough in finance. We're trying to be the vine. Wow. We're always looking for joy. But joy is found in abiding in the, in the vine when we're the branch. Wow. Wow. You know, I wrote down here, pruning hurts, but it works. Pruning hurts, but it works. There's a great story in the Bible about Jonah and the whale. You know the story about Jonah and the whale. Well, the, the Cliff Notes version of that story is, Jonah, God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was kind of a nasty place, and they didn't necessarily treat prophets very well in Nineveh. Jonah says, I ain't going there. So he gets on a boat. What's he do? He goes in the other direction. Well, this is where the pruning hurts comes in, right? Jonah's on this boat, and a storm comes in and starts breaking up the boat, so much so that Jonah has to go overboard into the water. Once he's in the water, if that doesn't hurt enough, a whale swallows him. After three days, Jonah finally gets the message that he better go to Nineveh. So a whale spits him out on the beach, and what's he do? He goes to Nineveh. So my wife loves to say, we all get where God wants us to go. The question is, do you want to arrive in the belly of a whale or on a cruise ship? Right? Pruning hurts, but it works. And Jesus further said in John 15, These things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy would be full. How is pruning joyful? Let's figure that out. Jesus is referring to joy as a power-packed word. It's an awesome word. And I love, I don't know if any of you know, have heard of the name Tony Campolo. He's a, he's a very, very dynamic speaker. Well, he's got, got to be in his 80s now, but a dynamic speaker. And I love his illustration when he talks about God's joy. He describes God making daisies. And he goes, I can see God in a field. And there's no daisies, but God says, boom. And all of a sudden, a daisy appears. And God says, wow, look at that. And then some angel over here says, do it again. God says, okay, boom. And there's another daisy. Wow, look at that. Boom. Wow, look at that. I guarantee you, whenever we'll walk by a flower again and just look at a flower, you'll say, wow, look at that. Because that's what God does when he did creation. And when God created you, he said, wow, look at that. Because he already knew what he stuck inside of you. He knew what he deposited in you. He knew what greatness he wanted you to, to do and be for others, for him, for his glory. And the joy that you would experience. Wow. I wrote <laughs> this last Christmas. I was sitting around with the week with nothing to do, and for me, that's not necessarily a good thing. I kind of have to keep busy. And my wife, you know, she would always say to me, you know, she says, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to, you know, is there something new you want to do? You know, she's wonderful about that. And I says, well, I, I think God's been telling me that I need to start writing devotionals again, because I used to write devotionals. And she goes, maybe you should do that. So I started praying over it, and, and God asked me to write a devotional a day for a year. One, a one-minute, one-page devotional for a year. Now, 
that's a daunting task. For any of you who loved English in high school like I did, right? That's a daunting task. But I'm now 194 devotionals into the year because I'm, I'm about three-quarters of the way through July. And none of them have, have been repetitive. And I'm like, God, where's this coming from? <laughs> and he just smiles because I know he's, he deposits every day what he wants to deposit. And it's interesting because I put this on WordPress and I didn't really promote it. And it's interesting, there's this little WordPress following and I look at the people that are reading these devotionals because they make comments and almost all of them are millennials. So God's using this little devotional as a ministry to the millennials. And I was thinking of joy the other day, or when I was thinking of joy, I I thought of this devotional that came out maybe a week ago. And it was from Romans 15. May, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I wrote for that day, the single greatest weapon of faith is called joy. No matter what or who you are dealing with, never ever lose your joy. Joy is the amazing breeding ground of peace and joy-filled peace quickly leads to hope. In these three emotions, the Holy Spirit of God will empower you to a new level of faith-filled living. There is a reason Jesus spent so much time talking about having peace, having joy, and eliminating worry and fear and doubt. He knows that with peace, joy, and hope, you become unstoppable. There are some days when you just don't feel like you have joy in your life. You know those days when everything seems to get to you and you soon feel a haze of gloom. Even the littlest problem becomes Mount Everest and the smallest criticism seemingly crushed your world. On those days, especially on those days, discover joy. For me, on those days, I say the name of Jesus. Jesus, you've got this. Jesus, what have I to fear? For you are with me. Jesus, you are all I need. With Jesus, your gloom and doom emotions don't stand a chance. Joy will return. But I can't shake this. The single greatest weapon of faith is called joy. What did Jesus teach us over and over again? Do not worry, do not fear, and have joy. You can't have joy in the natural in this world. It's not possible unless you have Jesus living within you, making that possible. Otherwise, you'd you'd look at Facebook all day or you'd look at the news every night like we are right now and you'd be depressed within a half an hour because that's what the world wants you to be. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Craig Craig gave the, the scripture verse earlier. That's true. The enemy loves to put gloom in your life because gloom leads to depression, leads to inactivity. You get the you get the stair step versus going the other way. Wow. You can have an incredible, joy-filled life. Wow. Let's see where we're at. I'm so far off point, I can't even tell you where we're at. I know where we're at. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So, I have two points today that we'll wrap up with. Two points. Loss is not an ending. Loss is not an ending. You've experienced loss in your life, financially, relationships, a job. You feel devastated as a result. I've experienced all three of those things. 
you feel powerless, you feel helpless, you feel like you've done something wrong. How could this happen to me? I thought I was bearing fruit. Woo, loss is not an ending. I've experienced a lot of loss in my life. But Jesus says, I am the vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then you say, but I was bearing fruit. The last habit you want to get into is questioning God. If God starts pruning in your life, don't question it. And I find that if ever I start questioning God, the first thing I do is I run. I don't walk. I run to Job 38. And that's where God is giving Job a lesson on who's really in charge. If you're ever depressed, sounds contrary, but if you're ever depressed, go read Job 38 and figure out who's in charge and figure out how majestic and incredible God is and how small we are, and yet he wants to partner with us. Wow. Because I'm reminded that God laid the foundations of the earth. I didn't. I wasn't here when he created man. I wasn't there. I didn't part the Red Sea. I did not deliver David. And I did not raise Christ from the dead. So who am I to argue with God when he starts pruning in my life? Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So what does pruning look like? Here's a, here's a good illustration. You know the story of Joseph. Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat, right? From the Bible. If you don't know the story, I'll give you a little bit of history here. Joseph is given as a teenager, he's given an incredible vision from God that a whole bunch of people are going to bow down to him, including his family, including his brothers. Well, his brothers didn't like that very much, so his brothers dumped him in a pit and said, nah, dad's going to figure that one out, so let's sell him into slavery. So they sold him into slavery. So here's Joseph's vision that people are going to bow down to him. What happens next? He gets dumped in a pit. And then his brothers sell him into slavery. And then he goes to Potiphar's house, and at Potiphar's house, his Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape because he wouldn't sleep with her. That's why. It was kind of a soap opera of the day. But she accuses him of rape. So he's thrown in jail. Look at this graph. Boom, 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 boom. And in jail, he interprets a dream, and the, guy, and the man he interprets a dream for is part of Pharaoh's house and says, I won't forget you. But he did for two more years, right? And then finally, at the very end of the story, Joseph is called to Pharaoh to interpret a dream because the, the servant finally remembered. And then Joseph is finally elevated. So Joseph's life in our world looks like an upside-down bell curve for you mathematicians. looks like this. Here's what Joseph's, looks, Joseph's life looks like in God's economy. God's pruning, remember. Let's see. I gave Joseph this dream so he knew his life was going to be of me when he finally gets to where I want him to be. So I gave him this dream. That's the starting point. And then his brothers throw him in a pit. Let's see. That elevates him a little bit because that's going to get him where he needs to go. And then he's sold into slavery. Okay, that gets him into Egypt. So that, that ticks him up here. So now we're getting a little bit closer to the end of that uh, rainbow that I need him at. And then he goes to Potiphar's house. And at Potiphar's house, okay, he learns management skills. He learns how to run the household. So he, he's gaining in strength. And then, okay, Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape. Perfect. That gets him where he needs to go. He needs to go to jail because I need him even closer to Pharaoh. So let's get him up here. And then once he's in jail, he interprets a dream. Oh, oh, oh. It takes him two years before he finally gets to Pharaoh. Okay, that two years is good because he needs to learn patience. He needs to trust in me. 
Now once he trusts in me, boom, he's the number two man in all of Egypt. That's the way God looks at the graph. We look at it like this. Loss is not an ending. God's pruning is not an ending. And you won't know the whole story until you get to heaven. And when you get to heaven and you stand before Jesus, he's going to say, see, I did this, 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 and this to get you here because I wanted that one person saved for Christ because 30 years from now, that person is going to lead the nation of Nigeria to Christ. People think they're so insignificant. There was one nurse, Morris Cirillo, when he was a kid, his father, his mother died at the age of two. She was an Orthodox Jew. His father was a drunk. So all the kids were put in an orphanage. So at the age of two, Morris goes into an orphanage. And Morris is, is at the time, was a pretty tough kid because he was undersized, always getting picked on, so he got developed a thick skin. And so in that orphanage, he runs into a Christian nurse working in a Jewish orphanage, hiding her faith. Otherwise, she would have been kicked out. And Morris would pepper this nurse with questions about Jesus. How can this Jesus be the Messiah? Because I'm learning about him in Hebrew school over here in my, in, my, in my schooling. And the nurse finally gave him a New Testament to read under his covers at night. This is contraband in a Jewish orphanage. And he reads it under his covers, and he realizes the Messiah in the New Testament is the same Messiah that he's learning about in Hebrew school. And at the age of 15, finally, there he starts getting harassed by the kids and literally beaten up over his heretical faith in Jesus. And he finally has enough and walks out in the middle of the night in a snowstorm and says, I can't take any more. God, if you're real, I can't take any more back there. You've got to lead me where I need to go. And within a minute, in a snowstorm, he felt two angels lead him down the street. And he found himself standing in front of the theater. As a movie theater got out, the nurse walks out of the theater. And sees him standing there and says, what happened? Took him in. She and her husband took him in, got him, uh, uh, got him placed within the uh, Assemblies of God church, and the rest is history. He became a minister. Ethel Kerr's mansion, the nurse in heaven, is massive because I don't know how many millions Morris has led to Christ around the world. And all the credit goes to Ethel Kerr. And we don't think our life is significant because we have no clue who we influence. We have no clue the breakthrough that we cause in the ripple of eternity by what God has us doing. So never, ever say your life is insignificant. Ever say your life is insignificant. Wow. So we just have to abide in God. God says, abide in me and I will abide in you. What does that look like? It was a man that attended church for many years, and all of a sudden one Sunday he stopped going. And an usher noticed it. And after a couple of weeks, the usher went to visit this man and knocked on the door, and the man opened the door, and he lived alone. And he kind of figured why the usher was there, so he invited him in. And, and they sat down in front of a fireplace, and neither one of them said a word because the, the man didn't feel like talking, and the usher wasn't quite sure what to say. So they just sat there together, and the usher was looking at the fire and noticing the, the embers and the burning, you know, of, the, of the, the wood and that type of thing. And finally, the usher got up, and he took some tongs, and he took a piece of the wood that was glowing red hot, and then he grabbed hold of it, 
and he stuck it on the stone on the mantle in front of the man and just let it go, and he put the tongs down, and he sat back down. And that ember glowed red for a little bit, and all of a sudden it started to turn black, and all of a sudden it smoked a little bit, and then all of a sudden it went cold. It sat there about a half an hour. And then the man smiled and picked up the tongs and picked up the ember and stuck it back in the fire, and almost instantly it began going red hot again. And he looked at the man, and the man had tears in his eyes. And the usher walked to the door, and as he walked to the door, without saying a word, the man said, that was quite a, quite a fiery sermon for an usher. I'll see you in church next Sunday. And the usher left. Abiding in Christ, when we abide in Christ and just let him have his will and trust him, we glow red hot and don't even realize it. When we don't do that, we become cold and lifeless and doubting and woe is me and poor is me and my life is, is tragic and I have this challenge and that problem and this versus get back into the fire and say, okay, Lord, you gave me this problem. What should we do about it? How should we use it for your glory? Boom. Had one of my best friends, he was the best man at my wedding. His dad was an interesting guy. He was a mechanic for a Jeep dealership in Denver. And uh, jovial guy, sang in the choir on Sunday, but he was a mechanic during the week. He wasn't a preacher. But the minute he got cancer and went to the hospital, he was bringing every single nurse and doctor that went in there, he was talking to them about Jesus. I think they were at five or six salvations in that ward of hospital workers before he finally passed away. Because he's like, if God's taking me home, I'm taking somebody with me. That was his attitude. So he used, he used what God had for him in his life. Wow. So some of you are saying, how do I get that kind of faith? What do I need to have that kind of faith? I'm hungry for that kind of faith. How do I get more faith? Well, the disciples asked Jesus the very same thing. Realize we always think of these disciples, these fishermen, as, as being these stalwarts of the community. They had the same doubts that we do, folks. They had the same issues and the same problems. All they did was they had the courage to step forward in faith, even when they lacked it. So they're coming to Jesus and saying, how do we get more faith? Well, Jesus told them in Matthew 17. He said, because the setup of the story is they had seen Jesus heal. And they walked up to a man who had a demon possession in him, and they go, be healed. And he wasn't healed. And they're like, Jesus, you did that. How come we couldn't do that? And Jesus' response in Matthew 17 was interesting. He said, because of your unbelief, you said it, but you didn't really believe it was going to happen. That's what the translation is. Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and nothing will be impossible to you. Wow. All it takes is a little bit of... Um, Craig here has, I brought some mustard seeds with us. I'm going to grab one. He's going to put one on each side of the, oh, they're hard to grab just one. Just grab, do it left ground. I got one. There you go. You only need one. You can't even see it in my finger. Jesus told about the mustard seed. He goes, this is the smallest of seeds, but it yields the largest of plants. So if you have that much. People talk about having great faith. You need to have great faith in your life. No, you don't. You need that much faith. 
and you can move mountains. Just that much faith. So, not, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I gave a message on mustard seed faith. And I took one of those mustard seeds and I put a piece of scotch tape across it and I stuck it to my computer at work. Every day I see that mustard seed stuck to the bottom of my computer. And I say to myself, all I need is that much faith. Just that much for today. And we'll move mountains. God and I will move mountains. He'll do the moving. I have the faith to make it move. Right? So this morning, Craig's going to come up and cry. I'm gonna, God's saying to me that you need to give a closing prayer for this today. So, but we're not going to pass these mustard seeds out. That's too easy. Because if you want even this little amount of faith, you need to come get it for yourself. That's what this is about. Come get your, don't grab a handful of seeds. You don't need a handful. You need one. You need one. If you drop it, we'll leave them out. Craig will get you another one. Or go to a grocery store and get some mustard seeds. And, and that's how you tape it, tape it somewhere where you'll see it every single day. And say, I just need this much faith. This much faith. And I can move mountains. So, Craig, I'll let you give a closing word. Thank you. Let's stand this morning. I'm going to pray to close. And the other thing we're going to do, um, we've got some people that are going to come and make themselves available to pray with you. Because as Jim, if you remember the way that Jim started that message was was with a vision that he had received from the Lord this morning about having your fist like this and then reaching it out across that line. And I'm sure each of us has those things in our life where we just can't seem to break through. We just can't seem to get through to the other side no matter how many times we've asked or prayed, or even say, like, you rage, you get angry at it. But this morning, by faith, we break through that line. We cross that line, and we open our hands, and we receive that miracle. And so we've got some people who are going to come and make themselves available. We want to pray over you. And when you come, I want you to grab one of those seeds, and then just wait, and we'll come along, and we're, we're going to pray. Father, We receive the word this morning that was released. By faith, we receive the vision that was released and declared over us of what was taking place in the spirit realm that we were not able to see as we were in the natural realm. But by faith, we believe. We receive the word of scripture this morning that was released over us about pruning about abiding, about not trying to be the vine, but being the branch. The branch gets life by being connected to the vine, which is Jesus. And we take the little faith that we have, that mustard seed, and we plant it and say, Jesus, I believe. Come on, say that with me. I believe. I believe. We are called believers because we believe, right? Say that, I'm a believer. I'm a believer because I believe. And I don't have giant faith. I've got mustard seed faith. But I'm a believer. In Jesus' name, amen. Josiah is gonna play, gonna, gonna, going to play. 
And if you want prayer this morning, I want you to come and grab that mustard seed and just stand across the front and we're gonna come along and we're gonna, we're gonna pray with you. We're gonna believe that in this moment that your mustard seed faith is gonna move that mountain that's in front of you. Don't wait, just come.